Welcome to Truth Triumphant Radio. I'm your host, Cody Mori. I want to continue the discussion today in regards to the French Revolution. And particularly, I wanted to look at the actual outcomes of the atheism that happened in France, the Declaration of the Human uh, or the, of the Rights of Man, and just sort of where that thinking, communistic, sort of alt left ideology where it led to because again we know that history tends to repeat itself and we are warned specifically in the spirit of prophecy that the things that happen in France are gonna happen again throughout the entire world so and, and the question remains is, is that is it going to be different this time in the sense of is it gonna be an alt-right movement that does similar uh, radical acts due to the radicalism on the left or is it going to be done by the left and have eventual alt-right movement come in later? Not sure about that. Don't know the answers to those questions. We'll have to actually see how this all unfolds. However, a lot of people have been very interested in this topic. A lot of people have talked to me about this particular, uh, I guess, little mini-series that we've been doing. We've done t two other ones on this subject. And I think we have at least one more here, perhaps another one after this one, to discuss sort of what happened in France, because France is the, the Jesuit playbook for how to destroy a people and then to take those people, use them, and weaponize them against their other enemies. Which, remember, if you look at history, you understand that Starting in the 1750s, the Portuguese banished the Jesuit order from their realms. France followed suit. Spain followed suit. Malta followed suit. A plethora of European countries. The Jesuits were banned from no less than 70 to 80 countries right around this time, uh, including Great Britain. So they were they were off guard. They were they were pushed back, and then eventually the Catholic monarchs of Europe they asked Pope Clement the Thirteenth to disband the Jesuit order entirely because they meddled in their affairs, which, quite frankly, is why they were designed. And the day before that Clement the Thirteenth was going to do this, he was poisoned and killed. So Clement XIV actually ended up doing it, and he was poisoned and killed after. And eventually the Jesuits were reinstated in the early 1800s. So in the late 1700s, the Jesuits were effectively betrayed by their own church. So what did they do? They infiltrated into the secret societies. They started things like the Illuminati. Right, Adam Weishaupt, the ideas of the revolution, which came from Ingolstadt, that Jesuit university that was in Bavaria, and they they began to work underground. They didn't come outwardly and say, you know, we are we're Jesuits anymore. They would work under different forms, and that's exactly what happened in France. The spirit of prophecy says that it was the Jesuits alone. The Jesuits alone and no other group that flourished in the declining 
France of the time. And we know that the Jacobins were there pushing this all this stuff. Robespierre, a Jacobin, one of their, their greatest leaders, uh, probably one of the most bloodthirsty men in France at that time. He was actually, uh, he went to the University of the College of Sorbonne, or the University of Sorbonne. Sorbonne was the, a university that had always been very pro-Inquisition. And when Protestantism was rejected in France, numerous times, the revoking of the Edict of Nantes, for instance, by Louis XIV, and the French Inquisition that took place there. You can read all about this in The Great Controversy. That's the, the most uh, concise way, I think, of reading it and really understanding exactly what's going on. But you could study all this stuff out, too, in, uh, in, in the secular side. And you see that they had the French Inquisition. Well, the College of the Sorbonne is one of the places where a lot of French Protestants died and were killed for their faith, right outside the university there. They were, they were set up on stakes and burned at that stake. And that's the college that Robespierre went to. That's the college. That's his legacy. By the way, if you are a Seventh-day Adventist, it would behoove you to know, if you don't know already, I know I've mentioned this before, but Ganun Diop also went to the University of Sorbonne. So not a good university, folks. It's not a good university. And look at what it's producing in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So, anyways, I wanted to get into, first off, I wanted to go back to Revelation chapter 11, which talks about what happened in France. And I'm going to start at verse 1 this time. It says this. Uh, I want to go from verse 1 right up and through to about verse 12. So it says, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall be shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So forty and two months, this all of us should be very familiar with. Forty and two months is 1,260 days, or three and a half years. And if you use the day for a year, if you use the day for a year principle, then you come to 1,260 literal years. So this is during the reign of the papacy that all of this takes place. It says, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Who are the two witnesses? These are the two olive trees. And the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now, if you go to Zechariah, you'll find that the two olive trees actually represents the word of God. So you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're the two candlesticks, the two olive trees, the two witnesses. One witness is the Old Testament scripture, precept, and example. And then the New Testament light, which shines back forth. Uh, to to enliven the Old Testament. So they, they both work together. Starting in verse 5, it says, And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have the power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. 
and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. Okay, so they, the powers that they have are the powers of the Old and New Testament, the plagues that are mentioned in Revelation and also the plagues that are mentioned in Exodus. These, these are the powers that the two witnesses have. So again, it's just another indicator uh, about who we're talking about here. Now, one thing that's very interesting is that it mentions here that the beast out of the body that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. So we know that in France, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit made war against them. But in France, it was atheism that made war against them. Therefore, atheism represents one of the heads of the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Because the Bible says that the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, uh, it's, the same, it's the same beast power mentioned in Revelation chapter 17, and the woman who rides it. And it's the same power represented in Revelation chapter 18. And also the judgment that falls upon this, this beast power. So they're all one and the same thing, in other words. So there was an internal, really an internal church struggle there. And who rises to power? Napoleon does. He begins to punish the, the Catholic monarchies of Europe and brings them all into subjection and even dis, dispossesses the Pope, takes away all of his... His papal states uh, basically breaks his power as a horn power is no, no no longer biblically seen as a horn power, and this goes on until the papacy uh, really signs a concordat with Napoleon, and then eventually the Jesuits are reinstated to power. So eventually they they get along again, but that's what all this was going on. That's why you think about it. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is not going to intentionally fulfill prophecy because prophecy said that their power to be broken, they would have a, a deadly wound that after the 1,260 days, which brings us from 538 to 1798, Rome would not intentionally fulfill that prophecy and break their own power for some other reason, for some side reason. No, there was an internal struggle going on at that time, and God knew that that would happen. He foresaw it. So, I want to continue on. It says, it says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beasts out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies, so the dead bodies of the Old and New Testament, so if their their witnesses are the substance of what they're what they are, then what represents their bodies? Well, obviously it's the ink and paper, it's the books themselves. So their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, again, Mrs. White states in the Great Controversy that this represents atheism, and this was fulfilled by France. And we can see that clearly. And the dead bodies of the Old and New Testament did lie in the streets. They were burned in the streets for all to see. They had public burnings of these things. The book of the book itself was outlawed, and Christianity in all of its forms was outlawed in France, despite the fact that there was eventually a counter-revolution about this, 
and that m most of the people still thought of themselves, at least in the rural parts, as Catholics. So it goes on. It says, And they of thy people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. So they, they remained burned up. They remained destroyed. They were not, uh, they were not respected. They were not given a, a proper burial, if you will, but they were just left out there. And it says, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall offer gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet. And great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And they had a great voice, and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So we see that the restoring of, of Christianity, and including Catholicism too, uh, but Christianity, religious religion in general, that happened exactly three and a half years after it was outlawed in France. We saw that last time. So what were the major outcomes in France? Well, most of the aristocracy and clergy were especially the refractory ones, the ones that didn't want to go along with the uh, revolution, they were killed. They had the sans-culotte, which was a really a mob in Paris that was constantly making demands uh, with the National Assembly and many times getting them. So it really was mob rule. It was pure democracy. It was communism. Same powers. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, but the aristocracy were they were hated by the people because of the all the taxes that they had imposed upon the people the feudal tax system the the peasantry and the like the classes they hated them and they hated the clergy because the nobility and the clergy were the two were the two upper classes and the rest of the people which represented something like 90 to 95% of the people they had less rights than that other real tiny percentage of of people which represented the clergy and the aristocracy so in 1792 this the first rumblings of the really the reign of terror started to bubble up in 1792 while Austria was on the march paranoia took a hold of well I'm gonna call them communists in Paris they decided that they want that they were going to kill the inmates who are suspected of being royalist, those who are arrested for that, uh, or anti-revolution, including refractory priests. And I want to read a quote to you from a book called *The French Revolution* by Ian Davidson. I mentioned this book before, and this is from page one thirteen. So some have been tempted to assume that Marat, the political rabble-rouser, was behind these declarations. For already in December 1790, he, would, he had made wild but unspecific calls for the massacre of 10,000 or even 100,000. Now he deliberately added fuel to the flames. The last resort, he wrote, which is the surest and wisest course, is to go armed to the abbey, and drag out the traitors, especially the Swiss officers and their accomplices, and put them to uh, put them to the sword. The sans culottes, 
were being stirred into a frenzy by this rabid journalistic campaign, egged on by various members of the commune. Remember, that's the Jacobins, or the Jesuits, really. The section of the Poissonnaire district adopted the following resolution. This section, considering the pressing dangers to the country and the infernal maneuvers of the priests, decrees that all the priests and suspected persons held in prison of Paris, Orleans, and elsewhere shall be put to death. And its resolution was endorsed by three other sections, those of Luxembourg, the Louvre, uh, and Fountain Montmorency. So, and that's exactly what happened. They killed thousands of people who were suspected of being traitors because the Austrians were still on the march and they were heading towards Paris. So, that was one of the major rumblings in 1792. If, you, if we back up a little bit and then we'll push forward to 1793, another major play here that took place was the death of the king, uh, Louis XVI. Louis XIV, two, two kings before him, he was an absolute monarch. He took power. He had no prime minister. He declared himself uh, an all-powerful monarch. And he, he he looked at Parliament as a problem. He he basically turned the the palace into a brothel. He he built Versailles himself uh, on the backs of the people. Brought the country to the brink of uh, desolations in war and also in in their economies because he spent so much money they were in great debt. Louis XV was not much better at all, though he he was just as involved in wars. He was actually less successful and less respected. There was an assassination attempt done against him, and he was known for his 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 lust. He turned the Palace of Versailles really into a brothel, and he, he never he never changed this aspect of himself. He eventually died of smallpox. Now King Louis XVI, on the other hand. He didn't have these sort of similar problems. He had he inherited a lot of these problems, but mostly what King Louis the Louis the Sixteenth's problem was is that he was very indecisive and he was kind of cowardly. Not things that were really worthy of death, but not great leadership traits either. Whereas King Louis the Fourteenth and the Fifteenth, you could you could easily make a case that. They were treasonous. They were treacherous against their own countries. Uh, King Louis the Sixteenth. It, it's not quite so clear. Let me just put it that way. It's not quite so clear that he was. Obviously, he was torn. There was many times where he de he decided that he was going to tax the nobility and the clergy. Uh, and by clergy, obviously, that means the Roman Catholic Church. That was the only legal church that was in France. But many times, the nobility would would bring a campaign against him and he would end up backing down so it, it just it just didn't take place and he gave people the problem was he gave the people of france false hope that he was going to make reforms and then all too often he would he would back down from those reforms and, and kind of cowered away and people got fed up with it and eventually his head ended up on the chopping block but it's a sad story. You know, the more you study it, the more you kind of feel bad for uh, King Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette. Just kind of wrong place, wrong time. 
The day of the storming of the Bastille, for instance, in July of 1789, most individuals say that that's really the beginning of the revolution, or prior to that, the declaration um, of the, itself, the body politic of France. Some say that's the beginning of it, but the storming of the Bastille in July 1789 was in King Louis's world was precipitated by the death of his son. So his son, who was very young, he was under 10 years old, I believe. I think he was like eight. Um, he died of tuberculosis a day, the day before the storming of the Bastille. So then that takes place. He's got an insurrection on his hand, on his hands. Uh, a couple of months later, in October, the king and queen really at the point of a bayonet, are forced from Versailles back to the original palace that King Louis XIV left in Paris. And when they came, they were seeking to kill Marie Antoinette because she was an Austrian princess and they never really looked at her. They, they looked at her as a big-time problem because she was constantly spending money, and she was. Um, but... So they came there, they came to kill her. She narrowly escaped, but some of her guards did not. And when King Louis XVI decided that he was going to bring his whole family back to Paris and he agreed to the, to the mob, they were holding up the heads of the soldiers around their carriage and taunting them with it. So it was a very scary situation for the king and his family to be in. He later on tries to escape to Austria, to the family of Marie Antoinette, but he's actually caught at the border of France. He's brought back, and a lot of the politicians there try to say that he was kidnapped, even though it was pretty clear that he was trying to escape. And the French decide to go to war with uh, Austria after some of their threats. That's what brings about some of the paranoia in 1792. And the king's power is eventually broken. Now, they find out that the king uh, wants to lose the war, and there's growing animosity between the people and the king. And eventually, he's tried for treason. He's tried for treason. His, all of his power is stripped from him, and he's actually executed in the guillotine on the 21st of January, 1793. And his wife, she was executed about nine months later, and even when she was on trial, they one of the charges brought against her, just some ridiculous charges to show you the mindset of the people at that time, headed by Robespierre, the Jesuits, the Jacobins, was they told Marie Antoinette one of the charges against her was that she had committed incest with her other son, who was right around the age of four or five at the time. And he, the, the son wasn't treated much better either. The son ended up going to was imprisoned and ended up dying probably of, of malnutrition, uh, starvation of some kind. But she was, she was also guillotined. Thirdly, Christianity was outlawed. We talked a little bit about this last time with, with the, uh, with the quotes from the, the great controversy. And this is, this is one of the things that that many people that romanticize the French Revolution, they try to leave some of this stuff out. But it's actually, it, it's, 
it was very striking to see how far they went against Christianity. They hated the fact that the the time, the year was was 1793, which was AD after the the calendar was all around the the birth of Christ, which actually the timing was a little off there, but the whole calendar system was set up around the birth of Christ, what was believed to be the birth of Christ. So what they did was they started year one in 1793 in in the fall, right around the fall time. And that's how much they hated Christianity. They did away from did away with the week. They have they would have in a month they would have three decades of ten days, so it would be thirty days. They changed the seconds instead of being sixty seconds in a minute, it was a hundred seconds in a minute and a hundred minutes in an hour. So there was less hours in the day. The Catholic centers of worship, such as uh, Notre Dame, they were set up as temples of reason. Death was considered to be an eternal sleep. People would write this over, over cemeteries. And of course, we know that the Bible was outlawed and burned. Now, where did this mindset lead after that? Well, the mob rule eventually gave way to what history remembers as the Reign of Terror, which was from 1793 into 1794. And it was very official. You gotta remember, this wasn't this though it was anarchy, though it was lawlessness, it was very ordered lawlessness. There was a committee of public safety set up. There was a revolutionary tribunal set up. So anybody who was believed to be anti-revolution in any way or pro-Christianity, they would be sentenced to death. And that those were the only options. Either you were guilty or you were not guilty. And it wasn't a trial by jury. It was just by this tribunal. And once, once you were seen as guilty, you could not appeal that decision. Your execution was carried out from there. And... Leaders like Danton and Robespierre, they said that terror was the order of the day because they, they, the paranoia of the anti-revolutionists was so strong in France that they felt that they had to go around killing all these people. Now, how close are we to that right now? I've heard Christians, folks, I've heard Christians talk about how they want Donald Trump to set up a military tribunal and not just one or two i'm talking about christian voices that are out there leaders friends that have intimated sentiments that they would love to see someone like donald trump if he were to take office again or they were talking about this back when he was in office that they want him to drain the swamp they want him to set up a military tribunal and to take care of these individuals that are let's be honest folks committing treason and they are they are but that that seems to be the tendency that the united states is heading for right now and it, it really it could go it could be from either side that's what's scary both sides have been so radicalized both sides have been so radicalized in the last really in the last four years ever since trump took office the left has become just implacably radical and alt-left and 
in the last two years, with the authoritarian regimes taking power on the pretense of safety and public emergency and health, you see the other side getting radicalized too. They're buying more guns. They're preparing for war. They're preparing for battle. And you can see. You, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to decode the things that are going on right now. Everybody's talking about civil war. Everybody's talking about another revolution. They're talking about cessation of the, of the states between each other. You know, let them have it sort of thing. Like places like New York and California want to split up. It's a very scary time. And a lot of Christians, they know. They know we're, we're close. We're very close to this thing, whole thing bubbling over. And we're very close to the end for that matter. So in France, they set up a revolutionary tribunal. They had the Committee of Public Safety. Think about that name for a second. The Committee of Public Safety. And what were they doing? Slaughtering people in the droves. It's estimated that 17 to 40,000 people were killed during the 1793 and 1794 reign of terror. What could you be killed for? Well, you could be killed for being anti-revolution. You could also be killed for being not pro-revolution enough. You could be killed for complaining about economics or inflation. If you said, Monsieur, which means my lord, instead of citizen, which is what France wanted to switch to, sounds, sounds similar, like, like communism, comrade. So saying Monsieur instead of citizen could get you on the guillotine. That's scary. They had a word police, folks. They had a word police back in the 17, late 1700s. You could also be killed for speaking favorably about King Louis XVI or Marie Antoinette, the recently overthrown monarchy, or monarchies in general, because it was seen as anti-revolution. And people did die. Every single thing that I've mentioned, people died for that reason. So if somebody was very quiet and they didn't say anything, they could they could be accused and brought before the Committee of Public Safety, the Revolutionary Tribunal, and tried for not being pro-revolution enough. Now fifth, and I know we are we're running out of time here. Yeah, we're we're pretty much out of time, but I'm gonna finish this part, even if it takes a couple of minutes. The last part was the rise of Napoleon. So where did this anarchy, where did this communism lead? Where did this rights of the people and citizenry and, and all this stuff, where did it lead? It led to the people losing rights. It led to the mob being overthrown by the dictator. The rise of Napoleon. He beat back Austria. Actually, if you study the Napoleonic Wars, as far as generals go, He's got to be one of the most impressive generals uh, I think I've ever seen. Greater than any tactics I've ever seen used. And you got to remember, I'm, I'm, I was in the Marine Corps, so I've studied some tactics. Um, you know, briefly, briefly. I, I'm not a general or anything like that, but I've studied some tactics. Everybody does. And to see what Napoleon did on the battlefield, clearly... Clearly, he was, uh, he was pretty much second to none in generals that I've seen over the course of, of all history, other than somebody like 
uh, in my opinion, Joshua or Moses or David, individuals that had God on their side. But as far as heathen generals go, he was uh, he was certainly a tactician. So he beat back Austria when he was very young. He was rising through the ranks during during the French Revolution time period. And he was in his his mid-20s to late-20s when he really started to, to become very popular in France. And that's because there was a three-front war between uh, Austria and the French. And his, his army was supposed to be basically a decoy army. And they were down in the south while the other two armies were up in the north. Well... Napoleon's the other two armies in the north failed against the Austrians and Napoleon's army was very very successful they beat back Austria brought them all the way into back into Austria back into their own country and what else did he do because the Pope had backed the Austrians he went down into Italy and declared the Roman Republic and did away with the papal states and brought the papacy through general berthier one of his generals uh, brought the papacy into exile he fought against the monarchies of western europe he defeated the prussians the austrians small german states uh, vassal states became spain portugal russia uh, the Germans, the Italians, Sweden. He brought, he brought, this is how you know he's a Jesuit. He brought a central bank to France, economic prosperity under him. He reformed the justice system, the Napoleonic law code. Um, he had a pro-France first policy. And he actually overthrew the, the unpopular, he had a, a coup d'etat of his own. And he overthrew the unpopular government, which was, I don't know what the name of it was, but the remnants of the National Assembly. I think it was called the National Convention at that time. He overthrew them and then declared himself uh, a consul of three and eventually his, his self first consul for life and eventually emperor. But what's interesting to note is that eventually he brought back Catholicism. And he actually signed a concordat with Pope Pius VII in 1801. Interestingly enough, it would be another Pope Pius, Pope Pius XI and XII, that would sign concordats with Mussolini and Hitler later on. And all of almost all of Europe, other than really other than England and maybe Norway and Russia, was kind of off and on. But Napoleon took over almost all of Europe. He almost did it. He almost united Europe again. Something that hasn't hadn't taken place since since pagan Rome, really. But what's sad what's really sad about Napoleon is what I found that uh, Mrs. White has to say about him in the book Education, page 195 and 196. The character of Napoleon Bonaparte was greatly influenced by his training in childhood. Unwise instructors inspired him with a love for conquest, forming mimic armies and placing him at their head as commander. 
Here was laid the foundation for his career of strife and bloodshed. Had the same care and effort been directed to making him a good man, imbuing his young heart with the spirit of the gospel, how widely different might have been his history. It's a sad thought to think that a tyrant like, like Napoleon Bonaparte, if he was raised differently, if he wasn't controlled by the Jesuit order, if he was raised to love God, to understand the gospel, Mrs. White says, and the Holy Spirit therefore says, how widely different might have been his history. Who knows? Napoleon could have been a great man of God that, because of his training, ended up being God's enemy. So those are the outcomes. And when we look at today, if the mob rule that we've already seen take place in our country, destruction of small businesses, burning down of cities, if it continues to, to go, uh, mob rule and communism continues to hold the sway of the day, we're likely going to have our own reign of terror here. We will at some point or another in some way. And will it lead to another dictator, a rise of some, some powerful, benevolent leader in this world? Absolutely it will, especially in this country. The papacy will once again be the, the world's hero. And just like Napoleon, who took over almost all of Europe, the United States will take over all the world for the papacy. But this time they will succeed. Where Napoleon failed, the United States will succeed. And we will see the rapid movements that Mrs. White speaks of they will unfold before our very eyes, and we will see Jesus coming in the clouds very, very soon. The Sunday Law is right around the corner. When all of this is going to take place, could be a couple days, could be a couple weeks, could be a couple years. But I think everyone is uh, is is like me as far as for a lot of a lot of folks. Not everyone, obviously, but a lot of folks that I've spoken with. I know there's a lot of folks that can sense that God is calling his people right now. He's telling them to, to get ready. He's telling them to prepare. He's telling them to, to put their faith in him, a simple childlike faith in him, a return to simplistic godliness, to humility. That's what we need right now. We need a revival and a reformation in our lives. We need to employ the right opportunities that we have now. We need to employ the time, improve the time, and get ready because we're, we're standing on the brink of eternity now, folks. If you see the way people are, it everybody thinks something something's going to happen soon. And we're, we're standing, we're standing, as I said, on the brink of eternity and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but if we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, he will see us through this. We'll talk a little bit more about the French Revolution next time. I'm Cody Mori, and we've, you've been listening to Truth Triumphant Radio. We'll catch you next week. God bless.